Harlots of History contains explicit language, overt sexual themes, and discussion of sensitive subjects. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Harlots of History, a show by women for everyone, except children and pets, including our own. This show is created by our love of the shadier, inventive, and bold women, men, and non-binary humans that you cannot find in the history books. We will be exploring and educating ourselves, and hopefully our listeners, on infamous mistresses, lovers, sex workers, courtesans, madams, vamps, sirens, and of course, harlots. We will delve into their pasts, sordid or honorable, discussing the era that they happen to live in and the problems of the times. Be ready for some controversial figures. You may be surprised at how many harlots in history you end up loving or at least begrudgingly respect. So sit back, grab a fizzy drink, some salty snacks, and have some fun listening to Harlots of History, taking back the word harlot one episode at a time. Welcome to Harlots of History, a history by two wonderful women for everyone. Wonderful. (laughs) Wonderful women. My name's Kara Mia. I am a stay-at-home mom. I really love it. It was a definite change because I used to be a full-time restaurant manager and sommelier, but now I'm a stay-at-home mom, so I bring all those lessons I learned in the restaurant and in the wine world to my house and home. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, you teach your kids how to like carry trays and And swirl their apple juice and... (laughs) (laughs) And who are you? Oh, I'm Emily, and I'm also a former restaurant person, but now I'm a stay-at-home bartender. (laughs) And you know what? Restaurant Um, person really encompasses it, because like between you and me, we've covered every position in front of house. We've done everything. Bartender, manager, host, server. Yeah. yeah, Poop, cleaner, upper. Right. (laughs) Like scrubbing walls, cleaning up, chewing gum, washing menus. Oh yeah, we've done it all. And I don't have a job anymore because being in the restaurant industry is not good right now. So I decided to be a stay-at-home bartender. So I just bartend for myself and my cats and my dog. I think, letting you know, I think you are an essential worker, Emily. (laughs) Thank you. I do, I do. (laughs) Yes, well, my coworkers really appreciate me being home more often. (laughs) You're talking about <laughs> your your partner, right? And your pups and your cats. <laughs> oh, yes, my cat. Your cat. Oh, I had an idea for a contest if we want to do a contest for people. My, this is my mom's idea, like a contest to get reviews. Mm-hmm. She was like, you should have people name Karamia's next child. <laughs> my good Lord. How many children does your mom <laughs> think I'm popping out? <laughs> Or my next pet. Who's like whoever wins gets to name the mes- next pet. That's cute. You get to name my next beta fish. Yeah, that's what I thought too. Because like, what if it's a really terrible name? I don't want to like. I, I don't want to like cat for the next twenty years. Name like Satan or like. Remember the motto from Parks and Rec. What's the motto? They the stick up Leslie Nopes. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, yes. public contests for naming always go wrong. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so I don't think we're going to do that. <laughs> no, but that's really, really funny. I like that. Yeah. Um, All right. Well, um, let's get into it before we digress too much like we always do. 
We always do before we become too caffeinated, right? Oh, yeah. So this is a unique episode because this is a morning episode that we are recording, and it's a coffee episode rather than a wine episode. Yeah, we're trying to see if we're as funny when we're sober. <laughs> and caffeinated. <laughs> and caffeinated. I'm on I'm on my third, well, second, I guess, but I have chai and coffee in this cup, so it's kind of like a dirty chai. It's really good. Nice. It feels it feels very folly for our episode. Don't talk to me about fall yet. I guess uh, this okay. is going to come out in fall, but I'm still living summer. <laughs> it will come out in fall, and I'm ready for it because it's we're recording this in August. It's 100 degrees outside. It's so smoky. I can't leave my house. I mean, I couldn't leave my house anyway, but now I really can't leave my house. <laughs> but I'm ready for I'm ready for fall. You're ready for fall. Like the minute it's like January 1st, you're ready for fall again. <laughs> this is why I can't live in like Matt wants to live in San Diego. And I'm like, no, I have to live somewhere where the seasons change. Mm-hmm. I'm right there with or I you. I have a fall house. <laughs> <laughs> oh. okay. okay. All right. Who are we talking about? So today we're talking about La Voisin Ooh. and we're going to France. France. 17th century France. And also nobody's like, this is something really funny, but like when I was younger, I didn't understand that when people said 17th century, they weren't talking about the 1700s. They were talking about the 1600s. So I'm just going to... I still don't understand that. Okay. See, that's what I was going to say. I'm just going to clarify it for people. So I'm talking about the 1600s because that is a very confusing concept when you're saying the 17th century. Because right now we're technically in the 21st century, right? I think so. Yeah. I don't know. We're in hell. Yeah. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I heard a really funny thing. Like somebody recently posted a like thing on their window in London said directed by David Lynch, no. just talking about their household. And so people started yeah. doing it. So someone was like, I'm going to put M. Night, directed by M. Night Shyamalan and we're all just going to wake up and it's going to be December 31st, 2019. Cause it was all a lie. We were all dreaming. <laughs> oh, that would be amazing. Right. Okay, well, yeah. back to La Voisin. Okay. So, La Voisin was a French... Wait. Horse- yeah. Wait, this is spooky. You have to say <gasps> Oh, yeah, sorry. Okay, so, on to La Voisin. This is our fifth installment. Second. Oh, my gosh. No. This is our <laughs> second... I can't keep track. This is our second it's installment okay. of our spooky harlots. Emily, sound cue. Spooky harlots. <laughs> <laughs> and this is because uh, Emily and I have... Uh, love for the darker, more macabre things in life. And we really wanted to tie it in, right? We just wanted to tie it Mm -hmm. into our harlots of history. We did. So La Voisin was a French sorceress. She was a witch, a diviner, a midwife, an abortionist, an occultist, and a poisoner. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) She sounds really cool. Like I said, Renaissance woman all the way. I know. All right. I'm like, I can like identify myself as two things. Like to I'd be able to identify yourself as seven. Like that's pretty cool. That and she sounds like she was like a, uh, like a feminist. Oh, you just wait. So La Voisin was a complicated woman whose life is still very much a mystery. Cause obviously if you were not a royal or you weren't on the winning side of history or you weren't somebody who controlled the history books, you pretty much are forgotten unless you are so infamous that they had to write about you. That's how I would have been. Right. And, uh, <laughs> 
La Boissin really played such a unique part in French culture, and her life is so fascinating because it has so many contradictions, and we get to throw in witchcraft and the mystic. Yes. So really quickly, just to kind of lay the scene, because we always have to, 17th century France, so 1600s, France was seeing an influx of people to the cities from the country, mostly to like, you know, city centers like Paris. Uh, France was involved in a period of civil war among the nobility, but now was under united under the sun king and we say it was among the nobility but of course everyone was affected under louis the 14th france was the most dominant power in europe it was also the cultural center and parisian salon culture was born court etiquette was most important protestants were persecuted so you know at this time england was like the protestant capital france was the catholic capital and the country was also an enormous debt thanks to louis lavish lifestyle and all of his wars most of the country was very poor and overpopulated many people were dying of hunger because of failed crops and a lot of poor farmers didn't have the knowledge or the money to try other crops. Yeah, it was just not a great time if you were not in power. <laughs> it just sounds like a huge wealth disparity. Thank you. Exactly. And the poor were actually seen as dangerous and they were othered because of their inability to read. Their religious practices were seen as magic. They were seen as having no hygiene. They had a high mortality rate because, of course, the wealth disparity. And their sensitivity to rumors and superstition caused a lot of public panic and riots. Because of course, at this time, if you didn't have a reason to explain something, or if you didn't have the knowledge to explain something, you relied, on your, you relied on your, you relied on your religion. And a lot of these religions that the quote, quote, poor people were bringing into Paris were from their country homes and their rural homes. And a lot of these families still practice, you know, more pagan cultures and more pagan religions. And, you know, pretty much they were just honoring their their former lifestyles and their former traditions. And it was actually seen as very dangerous in Paris. And here's just a quick quote. It was common to to express the faith in collective events such as pilgrimages, processions, guilds, shrines, countless saints, Lucifer and his bad uh, spirits, the world of witchcraft, and that of magic were strangely and intensively mingled. And that was by Santiago Ascarat for the um, Venetian Institute. And I just think that was like just really trying to express like how this time we always hear about the Sun King. But what, mm-hmm. what about people other than the Sun King? What about people outside of Versailles? So I just think that it's just really interesting to just see all these things that are brewing in the city of Paris. Yeah, and you only hear about like the really rich. You don't hear about all the other stuff at this time. Exactly. So the affair of the poisons and La Voisin definitely brought some of these fears of the nobility of the poor into the royal court of King Louis the Fourteenth itself. And we will be getting into the affair of the poisons because La Voisin played an integral part in it. So let's first so cool. start La Voisin's about her history. La Voisin was born in 1640 as Catherine de Chais in the vast city that is Paris. She became Catherine Monvoisin upon her marriage to Antoine Monvoisin, and that is where the record of her history starts. So <laughs> she became interesting once she got married. That's I know. What they're telling that's us. like... <laughs> I'll never be interesting. <laughs> oh, right. Oh, gosh. I'll say boring. <laughs> so not much is known about her before her marriage. Her husband was a jeweler and a silk merchant in Paris, but he wasn't a very good one because his businesses both went bankrupt. And then Catherine supported the family 
by the skills she learned as young as nine, which were chiromancy, which is palm reading and face reading. This is also known as divination. And so she decided to monetize on them and support her family. And just a really quick side note, when I saw face reading, I kind of laughed because I was like, I just took it like on, I literally read it like face reading. I'm like, that's kind of sounds silly. Is that really a thing? Like palm reading for your face? Yes. So like you look at the lines and stuff? Yeah. And like moles and stuff. And also just like, you know, this the set of your eyebrows and your nose. And it said that it's an ancient art form that can be found in many cultures. And in Western culture, face reading is based. So they read your face to figure out your character and your personality type. That's what they were doing back in the day. Is this where eyebrow plucking came in? It was like, <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> you're like, oh, 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 if you have too thick of eyebrows, you're like, I don't know, a, a whore. So everyone was like, oh, got to got to clock my right? eyebrow, eyebrows. And they <laughs> so like say better things about me. Right. And I was like, I'm kind of screwed because I have a mole on the right side of my face. And they said like moles are like a signi- a signifier that you have like a major personality flaw. And I was like, well, I'm screwed. <laughs> you have no personality flaw. You're perfect. <laughs> I have a chicken pox scar on my nose. What does that you mean? Do? I didn't know that's what it was. That's so cute. Yeah, I know. I have two. I have one on my thumb and one on my nose. Or as, as it would be called in the 1600s, a witch's mark. Oh. <laughs> Way to tie it <laughs> in. Right? Yes. <laughs> so uh, fortune telling was actually considered to be an acceptable occupation for women at the time. Catherine's other options for employment were probably either to be a maid or a laundress or a sex worker. By doing becoming a fortune teller and you know doing palm and face reading, she actually kept her family out of the workhouse fortune teller was fine but like it wasn't it wasn't grouped in with like witchcraft not at the time but then it did become grouped in it did become grouped in i wanted to say that like when you're talking about like her having to work to support her family turn to like stuff like sorcery and stuff i feel like that's something that i've seen a lot and like researching for spooky is people having to like come up with things like either sex work to support their family because their husbands lose their job or like sorcery. And then it's like they get burned for witchcraft. And I feel like it really is all about at that time, a strong woman supporting their family. It's like, if you were able to do that, then you must be a witch and you should be burned. Right. And it goes back to the very slender avenues for women for their options of occupation and their options to actually make money and make a living. And if there was an option, why not just go to the furthest reaches? I'm not, I'm not saying I support black masses, but I'm just saying like, if that's how you make your money. Yeah. I mean, you don't have a lot of options at the time. Yeah. Right? So Catherine, who I'm going to call La Voice Sin from this time forward, also began practicing as a midwife at this time. And she was well known for, she was a woman that you would go to if you needed an abortion. And she, mm-hmm. she chose to do this mainly for profit. This was highly illegal. And if you were caught having abortion or providing an abortion, the midwife and the mother would be sentenced to death. So if the, you know, so yeah, lovely time. Uh, She apparently had a network of abortionists working for her. And she even supplied this service to the women in the highest of classes. So we're talking the royal court. Uh, From face and palm reading and midwifery, she moved on to darker and more magical arts. And she was quoted on saying that she merely used and developed what God gave her when talking about her fortune telling and her other skills. So by the late 1660s, in her late 20s, she became extremely wealthy because among her clients were the highest of the aristocracy in France. 
Her life was well-documented at this time, and it's easy to form a picture of what she was like. She would receive clients all day at her home. And it said that people were lined down the streets when she woke up in the morning to see her. So she was very popular, and many people wanted to seek out her advice. Well, she could probably charge more too, like not just for the secrecy, but because she was like one of the only people doing stuff like that too. Right. And I think at that level, she was the only person Mm -hmm. doing stuff. Like she was just, she really cultivated a personality and she would entertain members of high society at night in her garden with like violin music. So I think that also people of high society kind of thought it was like fun to rub elbows with somebody who was like, you know, mysterious <laughs> and, you know, with that fortune teller. Fun. Like, I'm going to go drink in the fortune teller's garden tonight. And <laughs> that sounds really fun. Kind of, right? So you can understand yeah. why. Yeah, right. So under the moonlight. Right. And yeah, I'm sure she she went all out. It is thought she developed her fondness for wine during these nights, as most of us would. But uh, she was known to suffer from alcoholism. And she went to church regularly because she was a devout Catholic and was a very like valued member in her community. She combined her magic with her Christian piety, and she believed that everything she was doing was parallel to Christianity. So she believed all of her fortune telling and her face and palm reading, her midwifery, they were all parallel to Christianity. Um, so it was like a sign from God or like a God-given gift? Kind of, yeah. Kind of. And then and then also a lot of the rituals that are used in quote-unquote witchcraft actually stem from Catholic and Christian rituals mm-hmm. in the church. And even if you look back to really early accounts of Christianity, you can find like magic rituals. It was actually just a very common practice because, of course, it was a common practice among pagan religions and you know, mm-hmm. Christianity did develop from pagan religions. Right. Yep. And so she even had fetuses that she aborted, baptized. And like you were even saying, she was very progressive because she supported mm-hmm. her family of six, which, and also that was her children. And then she supported her husband and her mother. That's very impressive, especially at that time. Right. And she like, like supported yeah. them in style. It wasn't, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. They didn't just have food on the table. They had like pheasant on the table. <laughs> Stuffed pheasant. <laughs> I had, I was like, trying to say, I was like, what were, is it pheasant or pheasant? I was like, no, they didn't have pheasant. They had, <laughs> no, they weren't cannibals. They, they didn't, they weren't cannibals. <laughs> and although she was reported to be very plain, I kind of have a hard time with that description, but I also think that it very, we can kind of just say she wasn't the best of looking, but I think her career gave her a very strong sexual allure because she's known to have six lovers during this time. So exhausting, right? One was an executioner, another embassier. One was a vicomte. One was a count. One was an alchemist. She also had a magician and an architect. So she was just collecting men, I think. (laughs) I love that. Not only was she like supporting her like husband, but she was just like... (laughs) had an arsenal of men on the and, side. And there's isn't like a ton of like direct accounts of her husband. Obviously this is 1600s, but you get the impression that he wasn't the best of people and that he didn't really support her. <laughs> he in sounds any way. like a, a, a milk toast. What's a milk toast? I don't know. I don't know. What? <laughs> it's, I think it's like, a, it's a word. I think it's like a boring person. Hold on. I'm going to look it up. Okay. You look it up. <laughs> okay. I, I don't know about the executioner, though. I, I I support her having six lovers, but the executioner. Oh, I looked it up. Milk toast is a breakfast dish consisting of toasted bread and warm milk. And your milk what am I is a, of it, this? It's actually, it's a good, it's a good description for someone who's really boring. I think. I thought it was, yeah, description, not 
I think they're talking about French bread. Okay, now now all I see is oh, milk toast. It's spelled M I L Q U E toast. <laughs> I was putting in literally milk milk toast. <laughs> That's what I thought. <laughs> and you I kept said. coming up with French toast. Oh. Um, timid, meek, or unassertive person? No, he was Clayton. He was he was. Um, I think he was abusive to her. Oh well, then he wasn't a milk toast. No, he wasn't. We well, wish he was. We wish word. he was a milk toast with a Q. I, I like that word. Right. So to hone her talents, she used her previous experience from her face and palm reading, and she actually studied the uh, modern science of physiology, and she spent a lot of money creating the atmosphere for her fortune telling. I like to imagine it, but the only exact account we have is that she liked to perform in a crimson red velvet robe with golden eagles embroidered on it. Okay, so basically it was like the Gryffindor Mm -hmm. hall. Yes. Okay. Yep. And there was a story that in the mid-1660s, her skills as a fortune teller and in divination was called into question. And she successfully defended herself against the professors at the Sorbonne, which is like a very prestigious university in Paris. So she's someone who's not even of high birth or anything. And just she's came to the top of her field and... She's defending herself against the intellectuals of the day, which I think was really cool. And that she, is really cool. Right? And she became the head of a network of fortune tellers. She was like an awesome mob boss. Ah. During, right? <laughs> During her fortune telling, she realized that every single person pretty much was asking for the same thing, whether they had a lot of money, they had no money, no matter their where they fell in the the class system of the day. They were all requesting for someone to fall in love with them, someone to die so they could inherit wealth, or that their spouse would die so that they could marry someone else. Oh. So she capitalized on this because obviously we can realize she's a businesswoman. After this, Mm -hmm. she moved from her fortune career in fortune telling to a career in sorcery and black magic because she could charge more. Uh, She took great pride in her work and she never wanted to fail her clients. So she, she, I think, I honestly think she really believed in her skills. There's not really that. I don't don't think, I don't think she was trying to rip people off. It's, you don't really get that impression. You just get that she was like, I'm going to do more to make more money, but I'm also going to provide a bigger service. But like I said, I think she really believed that she was doing all these things for like she, she yeah, like she she could charge that much too. I don't know. I just, it just like, because if you got caught, you get like, burned right so it's like secrecy you have to charge more but also she like really worked hard to make sure they were getting what they wanted exactly and there's a story that once she was having a hard time securing a marriage for a wealthy client through her sorcery and through her Mm -hmm. fortune telling she couldn't secure a marriage for a wealthy client and she was worried that this one client out of hundreds and hundreds that she had would kill her career so she really was like it was really important to her to satisfy everyone that hate her yep and she sold black magic to make her clients wishes and dreams come true and black magic is kind of like a misnomer it's not as evil as we think right first she told her clients that if their wish was granted it was an act of god and if their wish was not granted then she had a Uh, She had them perform some tasks to make it come true, like visiting the church of a certain saint. And when that did not work, she would sell them an amulet or another magic object or some rituals. So whether she was doing this out of, you know, concern for them, sure. But she was probably also like, I have all these steps to make more and more money as well. She was capitalizing on it. Like a sales funnel. Exactly. Um, She sold love potions to the people who wanted someone to fall in love with them. These love potions contained the bones of toads, the teeth of moles, Spanish fly, iron fillings, 
human blood and sometimes like mummy dust or the dust of human remains. Iron fillings, like like teeth fillings. They had those back then? Just just bits of iron, yeah. Oh, like not like for your teeth, just no. iron. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. I was like, they had dental work back then? Uh, I think dental work was just pulling your tooth out back then. Oh, yeah. So she also performed black masses, which were very expensive and personal. These were based directly on a Roman Catholic mass. A voice then would set them up so that a person could pray directly to Satan to grant their wish, much like you'd prayed to God to grant something. And these were reportedly very dark events. So before I continue, uh, one of the things that I relied pretty heavily on to get some of this more salacious detail were the actual testimonies from the trials that happened during the affair of the poisons. And this is actually why we know so much about La Voisin is because she plays such a big part of this and because she played a large part in the trials and the trials were all typed up and you can read the transcripts today. But also a lot of these trials... I think people were just speculating hearsay, confessions obtained by torture. So we'll get into that more. But I just want to say when I say reportedly, it's because it comes from these testimonies. But I think it's important to say them because people during this time believe this. It's so common, I think, too, across like all witch trials where people would be, they torture them and then people would admit to these things because they thought it would make the torture stop. And then they would like burn them, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like you, there's no way to win. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, it is said that during these black masses, the woman's body was used as an altar. Uh, sometimes they, it was reported that babies were bled into a bowl that were on the women's bodies as offerings. The babies named. Always been, about killing babies. babies. Like that's, I know, that's right? The first thing they go to. I feel like it's because it's the most evil thing people could imagine. So, yeah, yeah. It's also, um, too, I think if you're trying to create fear, killing babies is like the biggest way to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. These babies may have been stillborn or alive. Again, these are all, it's all allegedly. The amount of blood and whether it was fatal is not known. The baby's blood would be consecrated in this way and become the host, like in communion. And uh, then it would be used in potions. And people also wrote their wish on a piece of paper. And put it in a ball of wax and then into the fire. And then they would be told that the devil read their deepest, darkest wishes. And here is a quote from the testimony of Lavoisin's daughter in uh, 1680. She said, I saw that the lady was laid naked on the mattress with her head hanging down, supported by a pillow on an overturned chair. Her legs were dangling, a towel on her stomach, and on the towel, a cross at the place of the stomach, and a chalice on the stomach. So, it's a picture. <laughs> it, yeah. It, where? Yeah. <laughs> and also, her daughter in the same testimony also said, It is true that a midwife who lived at the corner of Rue des Du Portes also distilled the entrails of a child whose mother had given birth there, led by Lavoisin, his mother, to cause her to have an abortion. So they're saying like all these, it's just it's just another allegedly, I'm not going to go into it more, but I just wanted to say some of these highly outlandish things that were said about her later. And of uh, course, like, you know, if it's ever taken into account, like the women that were having these abortions sometimes, you know, couldn't pay for another child and there was no birth control or like there was something wrong with the woman and having the child would kill them or, you know, 
Also, burning the entrails of another child does not cause another woman to have an abortion. <laughs> of course it doesn't. No. Just, just felt like we needed to say that, but that's what these people believe yeah. right now. In this testimony also came out that she burned the aborted fetus, fetuses in her oven. But of course, even if she had done this, she did not do it all alone. And she had many business partners and employees. But why would you do that? That would smell so bad. You would, no one would ever do that. Like okay, no one wants to Just think of what Paris smelled like at the time. I'm sure it was a really smelly place. People just... Well, well, that and like all the inquisitions and stuff going on at that time, not at the exact same time, but like England with it during the inquisition, like it just smelled like burning flesh all the time because so many people were getting burned. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Anyway. (laughs) Anyways, away from burning flesh. uh, Adam Lesage was her magician lover and he's actually quite famous. That's why I wanted to bring him up. Uh, He was also referred to as a professional occultist. It is, uh, like I was saying, it is rumored that Lavoisin's husband was abusive and drunk and she made it quite known she did she did say quite often that she wanted to kill him i think it was just in like passing conversation and adam lesage persuaded lavoisin to kill her husband via magic so that he could marry her there were claims that there was he enchanted a sheep's heart but she changed her mind at the last minute had him remove the charm and she then graduated from selling amulets and potions and magic rituals to selling aphrodisiacs and poisons, which were also called inheritance powders. Because if you gave someone a poison, you would get their inheritance, especially if you were in line for it. <laughs> that really cool. That's a really cool name, inheritance powders. Right? I was like, it sounds like a name for a perfume or something. But All of their stuff sounded so cool, even if it was like really evil. Right? Totally. Leave it I to the French like- to make poison sound cool. Right? So La Boisin had a wide variety variety of poisons and supposedly had a wide variety of poisons and many apothecaries and poisoners working for her. The dangerous substances for many poisons like arsenic, arsenic was very commonly used. They were not regulated at all. The only rule that was in place was they were told apothecaries were told not to sell a poisonous substance to someone of quote unquote ill repute. That sounds like Like, a very, that, that sounds like there's no, there's no opening for interpretation there. None at all. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Isn't it interesting that arsenic was a poison? I mean, we know it's a poison, but it was used as a poison. And then they were also using it to try to cure syphilis at the same time. Right. Right. I think, yeah, I do think it's really interesting. And they, I even um, heard that, you know, it was, it was so commonly used even up until I even want to say the 20th century, but then they realized, hmm, the cons of arsenic far outweigh the pros. It's doing is way it, more harm than good. <laughs> isn't arsenic like clear? Is it one of those like clear things that's really easy? Especially if you, you mix it with other things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, and it's also cyanide the cyanide is the almond one, right? Yeah. Cyanide, you smell almonds. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. At this time, the advances in toxicology were steadily growing because a lot of people, you know, science was growing. So, toxicology was growing. And many people started to fear this idea that there was like a threat of a poison you couldn't detect. Oh, yeah. It's almost like how people fear like some science fiction things. I feel like people back then, this idea of a poison that you couldn't detect was like science fiction, but it was still something that they feared because it was unknown and unexplainable. And and it's like this poison or this, uh, not poison, um, danger that's like all around you all the time. Couldn't see, that you can't see, right? Yeah. Yeah. So poisoning was actually quite a trend at the time, if you could call it that. And it was seen as something that was like very foreign, mainly Italian. Italians were known to be the best poisoners. 
I, I, that's just what you hear. That's what you hear, which I think is like a pretty cool like stereotype if you want to call it that. It was said to be perfected by an Italian woman named Giulia Tofana. And she created Aqua Tofana, which I, I don't know if anyone's ever heard of, but it's really famous in history because it's a combination of arsenic, lead, and sometimes belladonna. And it was colorless, odorless, and tasteless. And she sold this for years in Southern Italy for women who had abusive husbands during the first, so the, in the early 1600s, she was selling this. So right before uh, La Boisson would have really started to come into her craft. Well, yeah. And like, what were your, what were your options at the time? If you had an abusive husband, like nothing, you didn't have any, you just had to like stay married or hope he would die. Right. And she felt really bad for these troubled women and these women would, she sold it as a cosmetic product to kind of fly under the radar in the 1600s. And then she, the women would get it from her and she would have them mix it with their husband's food or drink. And it's slow acting and, it required doses, so it really was able to mimic gradual sickness. So yeah, you can't uh, tell. No, no, and so it, like it starts. So the symptoms of the first dose were like very com- parallel to the common cold, and then by the third dose, you know the poisoned husband would be experiencing diarrhea and excessive throwing up, and of course dehydration and pain in their digestive system, and then they would be dead by the fourth dose. So if you spaced it out, you know, you couldn't, you, yeah. it would, it would look like someone was, what was the, everyone was dying of consumption. I feel like that's what they use when they didn't know what you died of. They died of consumption, yeah. right? Don't you always hear that? Well, yeah. And also like how, wasn't consumption tuberculosis? I'm not sure. I just not, feel like, I just feel like that's what you always hear. I think it is too. Uh, I'm going to look it up. But also at the same time, like medical autopsies like how could i mean how accurate could they really be right i mean the answer to everything was bleeding people (laughs) oh it's a a wasting disease especially pulmonary tuberculosis yeah 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 because you were right oh tb chronic cough with blood containing music uh oh music (laughs) mucus it was called consumption due to weight loss See, and so I think that it was really easy for people to characterize these deaths as something else. So Julia Tofana is believed to be behind 600 deaths. And I think she gave powerless women options. I'm not advocating for death and poison, but... Yeah, at the time when you didn't have any options. Right? Yeah. There was no protection for women with abusive husbands. Yeah. And she was accused guilty for some of these deaths and was executed in 1659. That was a couple years before La Voisin started to create or procure her poisons. There was even a rumor that Mozart was poisoned by Aqua Tofana. What? Right? So I, it was really, yes, yes. And so obviously it's not validated, but it's a rumor that you've, I've seen in multiple places. Oh, I bet that's what happened. I'm going to say that's what happened. Right? But it's a fun rumor to think. Um, I know. And alchemy and creating poisons really go hand in hand. We're, no, sorry. We're believed to go hand in hand. Reportedly, many of the poison providers working for La Voisin was alchemists, and alchemy was really on the rise at this time. Obviously, it's really, alchemy was really popular in medieval Europe as well. Alchemy is actually a really old and beautiful philosophy that was found in many ancient cultures, not just in Europe. It was found in, you know, Asia and parts of Africa. It revolves around the transmutation of base metals into gold, the philosopher's stone, like in Harry Potter, the elixir of immortality, medicine, balance in the natural world, just to name a few. And it's seen as a precursor to chemistry and medicine. So the alchemists, though, lived, a lot of them lived a life of mystery. So I think it just added to this idea that while they're working in their laboratories, they're creating poisons, 
not that they're actually basically they were just they were making like chemical reactions exactly and no one exactly. no one knew i mean chemical reactions though some of them are like look like magic we did a lab in one of my chem classes where you put different uh chemical or i guess it was chemicals on fire and it, all the fires changed color so it was like a purple fire a blue fire like it was really cool yeah and if you didn't know about chemistry imagine seeing like a purple fire green fire you'd be like magic <laughs> exactly <laughs> and like you know al- alchemists were actually like they were masters of knowledge on many different things and they were often called into court to advise on like mining and medical service and the productions of other chemicals medicines metals gemstones but most alchemists were not interested in poison but they were prefer- they were part of a mysterious brotherhood who were misunderstood and they were cool. tended to be you know grouped in with the pr- practitioners of black magic which we will get into now. With the arrest of Julia Tofana in Italy and the death of the wife of the king's brother, the Duchess de Orleans being falsely reported due to poisoning, and other high status of rest of women due to the fear of poisoning, which we will also get into, France and Europe were very afraid of being poisoned. So everyone thought that they were going to get poisoned. Priests were also saying there was a major increase in people confessing to poisoning someone during their confessions. <laughs> But oh, just because maybe they were like, were they asking more about it? Or no, like, no, I just because people confess, you know, when they go to confession, okay. they said that there was an increase in people confessing oh, that they had poisoned someone. Like, not yeah. like, not like being tortured, but like no, 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 no. But okay. yeah, going to confession to a priest. Okay. Yep. And in France, there was also the widespread hysteria by the public that witches were going to steal their babies and children. There was reportedly a riot that took place because of this. And that's why I think it comes up in testimonies about La Voicen a lot. Uh, many ideas of witchcraft and about the women who were considered witches at this time were simply folk healers or people carrying on rituals from pagan times. And I think that it's we need to note that uh, during the Renaissance Many magical practices and rituals were considered evil, and folk magic was considered low magic, while the magic used in ceremonies was considered high, and ceremonial magic was practiced by the higher classes and escaped prosecution. So witchcraft was actually seen as less mainstream, and it was considered ritual magic. And so it was prosecuted heavily since the Inquisition, like you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Catholic Church combined the idea of Satanism and witchcraft to prosecute so-called witches for centuries. The idea of a conspiracy of satanic witches was actually made up by influential men in the Catholic Church and in the courts. What? What? Right. And the idea of malevolent witchcraft was reinforced by songs, folk tales, and stories. And so people like a folk healer could be considered a witch. A heretic could be considered a witch. Just I feel like it was like someone that went against like what they wanted. Mm -hmm. And I was reading too like this is because what what you were saying that kind of like with christianization that's one that all started because it was like anyone who wasn't following the church was you know evil and then they were also scared of pagan cultures and like Mm -hmm. you know like because that was invoking a lot of spiritualism and it was like oh god And, and it's unknown and so then it must be feared yeah and religion and magic were really connected at this time. And I think that many so-called sorcerers, diviners, and magician in this episode really connected the two. I actually took a class called Religion and Magic in college. See? Yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. 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 So I think that, you know, these these people who were fortune tellers and sorcerers and everything, they didn't see what they were doing as evil or bad. But then, of course, 
because they're doing something that's not the norm and they're adding in a couple other practices, they're considered witches. Right. Box, who's a Hungarian ethnographer, said that there are four reasons why a person is accused of witchcraft. A person is caught in the act of positive or negative sorcery. Two, a well-meaning sorcerer or healer lost their clients or the authorities' trust. Three, a person did nothing more than gain the enmity of their neighbors so their neighbors don't like them. And four, a person was reputed to be a witch and surrounded with an aura of witch beliefs or occultism. So none of yeah. those are definite reasons that definite proof that someone would have been a witch, but it was enough to get you accused of witchcraft. Well, and also they were relying like super heavily on like eyewitness statements. And it's like, if more than one person, they were like, if, you know, if you and I were like, oh, well, uh, goody two shoes is a witch. They'd be like, oh, well, Emily and Karamia both said it. Like that's definitely, it's definitely fact then. Everyone just go read the crucible, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I feel like many women who are independent, particularly financially, and practice as a non-mainstream healer, like a midwife, they were all grouped under the broad title of witch. So mm-hmm. this atmosphere of poisoning and alchemy and witchcraft and riots based like, on women stealing babies all really set the affair, the atmosphere for the affair of poisons. Or like mm-hmm. naturopathy too, with mm-hmm. like, you know, it's like, oh, people using like plants and stuff instead of bleeding people, oh, they must be a witch. Right. Oh, she used a poultice. <laughs> yeah. Right. You're like, no, it's, yeah, it's literally just like herbal remedies. Right. Exactly. So we're going to quickly go into now after we've learned about the beginning of La Voisin and where she is at this point, where we're right now in the 1670s. We learned about poisoning and alchemy and witchcraft and a bit more. And now we're going to go into the court of King Louis the 14th because he is the one who pretty much carried out the affair of the poisons. Okay. King Louis, the royal court of King Louis the Fourteenth, otherwise known as the Sun King, is where the affair of poisons pretty much a huge part of it took place. So I know you and I are both obsessed with this time because of the complete overhaul of Versailles, which I really want to go to. And King Louis has the longest recorded reign of any monarch in all of European history. 72 and a half years. So he had a lot of influence. As an adolescent, he lived through a series of civil wars that ended in 1653. The young king fought against his law courts, the nobility, opposing princes, and some of the public, and he still won. So these civil wars were called the Fronde, and they helped establish the true emergence of absolute monarchy, which was was overthrown in the French Revolution. Yes. And the nobles were humiliated. When he was older, he wanted to deprive the nobility of power and wanted them all close to him, not at his estates. So he created Versailles as the center of royal life, and he required the noble families to live on the grounds. And he created this, this really ritual life. You know, everyone wanted to be able to wipe the king's butt. You know, like we've all read about everything, like every position Every like noble wanted some position and being the king, the person that wiped the king's butt was actually like a really good position to have because you got like FaceTime with him. It was, yeah. Um, (laughs) FaceTime. Yeah. Right. They all, all these positions, of course, were created by the Sun King to help people carry favors from him. So they all depended on him because living at the Royal Court was extremely expensive and many of these nobles grew poorer and poorer. And so the only way to gain a prominent position under the king, the only way to really gain wealth was to gain a prominent position under the king. He really didn't wipe his own butt. He had someone to do that for him. Yeah. Every, every position in the court was extremely ritualized. Everything, everything. That's weird. Was it like a leaf? 
they use leaves? Do they have paper? I, paper I, have, I have no idea. Probably Why did you look into um, that? Right. I think it, I've, I've heard reports of silk, I think. Oh, God. That's right. So it smears, right. Oh, God. And it so, sounds really nice on your butt, though. Like, right. It's so soothing. Well, it's better than Charmin, that's for sure. <laughs> and so, Charmin silk. Right. So the only way to really establish stability and wealth and gain estates and titles was to get a position granted to you by the king. So everyone's just constantly over spreading rumors, climbing over each other, using all these cutthroat methods to get these prominent positions. And so for a young woman, the highest you could ever hope to climb was that of royal mistress. And as a royal mistress, the woman could have direct and private contact with the king and come out wealthy with a title taken care of until their death. And also, as we know, royal mistresses you know, they, they were so influential as Emily has covered in Madame de Pompadour. Yeah, they did a lot. Yeah, they sure did. Um, they were like prime ministers and stuff. It, that's actually, I think, a really good comparison to their amount of influence. The court at King Louis XIV's Versailles encouraged competition. And he had many women at court who fought to please him and gain his attention. He, of course, had his wife, Maria Teresa of Spain, but he only used her for her connections, to make babies, an heir, and to attend royal functions. For everything else, he used mistresses. He was not Sounds faithful like to her. toxic masculinity. Right. At its, finest. at its finest. And he had many official and not official mistresses. So now that we know that about his court and we know it's cutthroat and that women will do anything to become the royal mistress, go into the affair of the poisons which is a murder scandal with poisoning and allegations of witchcraft that expanded all the way into king louis the 14th royal court it's cool so right and it's pretty much formed on rumors and confessions gained by torture it is also it's not cool so there's it's there's so much information about this affair and i'm gonna pretty much just give a really quick synopsis there are so many interesting stories there's so many there, there is individual stories of like dozens dozens of women that are all really interesting all really clever with the way they try to poison their husbands some of them i believe did try to poison their husbands some of them not because everyone of course is just trying to save their own butts so so it began at the peak of Lavoisin's career. The Madame de Brenvilliers, who was accused of poisoning her father and her two brothers with her army captain lover to inherit their estates. So she was a, she was obviously highborn, a socialite, a lady of class. So this was extremely shocking to the public. Like, how could she have even done this? They thought like only poor people were capable of like doing bad things. Exactly. So that's why the affair of the poisons kind of really shocked the nation. After a fortune teller was sentenced to death because of fraud and murder by poison, the police chief, Gabrielle de la Renier, discovered the connection and supposed network between fortune tellers and poisoners. So he made that connection from one fortune teller confessing, I'm doing air quotes because obviously it was probably gained by torture. And when he discovered the supposed network between poisoners and fortune tellers, and he tied it in with Madame de Brambilliers, he was like, all fortune tellers, most fortune tellers must be poisoners. And we got it. There's a whole network and there's this whole conspiracy. And he was tasked by the king to root out all the poisoners in Paris. He was like the original conspiracy theorist. I guess so. <laughs> so again, like I'm saying, I'm really generalizing. There's a lot that goes on in this affair de poisons. I'll get into exact numbers later, but I'm just, we're staying with La Voisin's storyline. Madame de Mont Montespan was a client of La Voisin's, 
before and while she was the royal mistress to King Louis XIV. She was the royal mistress for over a decade, and she bore the king five children, and he actually legitimized them later on. So they weren't royal bastards. They were his legitimate children. They weren't, like, kings. None of them became. No, but they, they held power. Yeah. Okay. She was very beautiful and witty and a great mimic and was a great storyteller, always kept the king entertained. She supposed it was very mocking of the other couriers at court. Of course, we know that there were many overlaps in mistresses. Louis XIV was known to have an official royal mistress and an unofficial royal mistress often at the same time, and he would make them be companions to each other and live together. Ugh, that's and so Madame mean. Ma- right? Could you imagine? And of course, oh Madame, Madame de Montespan was a very jealous woman, as you would be, because, you know, he's trying to get women to Your fight over him. Boyfriend's constantly cheating on you with, like, everyone very publicly and then making you live with his other girlfriend. Yeah. I'd be jealous, too. <laughs> I wonder what you talk about with the uh, other woman. I don't know. <laughs> you share tips? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh. oh, God. You're like, here, here. This is a, just the uh, massage his ankle and he'll, he'll go right to sleep. His, his sweet <laughs> spot is his big toe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. No. Insider can imagine. Insider dealing. That's for sure. <laughs> Oh my gosh. I just like to think that they had this book of official royal mistresses that they kept adding to for the next official royal mistress. So they had like, like a whole, like a, you know, a guidebook to what he liked. Oh yeah. Like it's like the, um, you know, there's like this, the president's book in the White House or whatever. They have that book that they leave for the presidents. It's like that. The royal mistresses leave it. It's like, okay, well, if you give him fish, he'll smell really bad. So don't give him that. Like he thinks that he thinks that, uh, some, some really, I'm trying to think of something really funny that he would think is an aphrodisiac. I don't know. I was like a snail, but those are supposed to be aphrodisiacs. Aren't they? Are they? Escargot. Aren't they? I thought that oysters are aphrodisiacs. I don't know. Escargot is really good, though. Maybe not. Maybe the, I think escargot is supposed to be an aphrodisiac. Oysters are, for sure. Mm-hmm. I yeah. don't know. I but want yeah, an oyster. So, I'm just really... <laughs> right? I want to go out to restaurants. So, Madame de Montespan was a very jealous woman, as most of us would have been in that position. And Madame de Montespan commissioned Lavoisin for a black mass in 1667 to pray for the love of the king before she became the official royal mistress. And after this black mass, she was promoted to royal mistress. And so she had complete faith in Lavoisin, and she went to her with many problems. One of the priests who claims to have been present at more than one of the black masses with Madame de Montespan gave detailed accounts. So we all know that these detailed accounts are the absolute truth. (laughs) I was going to say, I'm sure they're very reliable. Right. He said that he bought a crown for the child that was sacrificed. He cut its throat with a penknife and used its blood for the first offering, its heart and entrails for the next. He would mash the baby up, bones, blood, and all. And it was used to dose the king's food for 13 years. He also said he saw a piece of paper that was a satanic pack, and it supposedly said, so I, I guess I should clarify, this priest was giving testimonies about this black, these black masses with Madame de Montespan who was the king's royal mistress and La Voisin. And so someone else was the royal mashing priest. babies. Yeah, the royal. So he, she, uh, La Voisin employed priests to do black masses because obviously she couldn't attend to every black mass herself. So one of these priests that she employed is alleging this. That he is he confessing that he did it, or he's he, confessing that someone else did it, or he was made to do it. You know? Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. 
Yeah. So he said he was present. So he was conducting these. So he also said he saw a piece of paper that was a satanic pact. And it supposedly said, this is in Montespan's supposed hand. I asked for the king's friendship and that of his son, the Dauphine, and that I may continue to have it, that the queen may be barren and the king may leave her bed and table for me. I may obtain all that I ask for him, may obtain from him all that I ask for myself and my relatives, blah, 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 blah. And these accounts come in like 1980. So this guy is alleging to remember this whole, sorry, 1680. So this guy is alleging that he remembers every single last little thing that she wrote on a piece of paper years before. Yeah. In no. the 1670s. So I'm just like that. Yeah, exactly. So, no, but when the King's not. interest cooled off in the early 1670s, Madame de Montespan ordered more black masses from La Boisson. Madame de Montespan was even rumored to act as the altar during one of them with another infant sacrifice. In 1677, Montespan made it clear to La Voisin that if the king left her, she would kill him. When the king took or when the king took another mistress, the Duchess de Fontage, in 1677, Madame de Montespan was demoted from royal mistress to superintendent Ooh. of the queen's household. Ooh, which is like a big demotion in the face. I know. Yeah. Madame de Montespan called for La Boisin and asked her to kill the king and his new mistress. And obviously this is all through testimony. So even when I say it made it clear to La Boisin, I should, I should just again, try to say it clear in the testimonies. Right. Um, yeah. La Boisin did apparently have to be convinced. It is rumored that Madame de Montespan offered her a high sum of money. It's alleged that La Boisin worked with a trio of poisoners. One of them was actually the fiancé of her daughter. They tried to poison a, peti- a petition that would be delivered to the king's hand because you could petition the king in those days. In early March uh, 1679, she tried to deliver her petition to the king at court, but too many people were there trying to petition the king as well. Her daughter supposedly burned the undelivered petition. So this was so, a murder so plot they, like, that put, was... Go ahead. Put poison on a piece of paper. Yeah. And, and so that give it to him. Yeah. And there's actually like a lot of accounts of women like poisoning their husband's shirts. Does that even so work? The poison would go through their pores. I don't know. I feel like it would take a lot of poison. <laughs> I do too. Yeah. Yeah. Like Just even put it one in their of the, food. Like, right? Right? So of course, like this... It's all adding up to the affair of poisons and like this poison petition, if it happened, uh, happened while the affair of poisons was going on. So La Voisin regularly fought with a competitor named Marie Boss, who was a fellow fortune teller and supposed poisoner. Marie Boss attended a party in 1678 and proceeded to get so drunk and got, got so drunk and started boasting about how she'd been selling so much poison to the aristocracy and that she would soon be able to retire. A guest from the party reported he? her to the police, right? Wait, this is the rival. This Madame is the rival of Bob. La Voisin. Yes, Marie Boss. Okay. Yes. Uh, Marie Boss. That's a cool name. Right. And so the guest reported her to the police who had kind of started investigating the poison sales at this time and the links between fortunes and poison, uh, fortune tellers and poisoners. So Marie Boss just kind of played right into their hands. Oh my gosh. She just can't, really can't handle her champagne. <sighs> she... 
Sure can. And she was condemned to death by burning and her confessions incriminated many fortune tellers in the aristocracy. And she revealed that fortune tellers were handling the sales of poisons in Paris, supposedly. So along with the other fortune tellers she named, Marie Boss named La Voisin as a poison provider and diviner. She slandered La Voisin in every way possible. She said that she had like a thousand babies buried in her garden, like Every way possible, Marie Boss slandered La Boyson. Probably, I guess if you're going to go down, you might as well take your like our competitor with you, you, right? And so Marie Boss was executed in May 1679. So this would have been just a couple months after the supposed poison petition plot. During this time, an English ambassador at the royal court remarked, uh, "The multitude of distinguished people being arrested for poison grows every day because, along with Marie Mm. Boss." naming a bunch of fortune tellers. Uh, their clients started to get implicated, which were supposedly very rich and high-class women. La Voice, uh, the king was rightfully very nervous for his life at this time. To give assurance to his king, the police chief started rounding up large numbers of fortune tellers and alchemists. They were accused of selling innocent things like divinations and seances, but also aphrodisiacs and poisons. They would then confess under torture and provide the list of clients who had bought poisons or black masses from them. So it's just a very exhausting witch hunt. That is exhausting. And it's also how reliable is it if you're freaking torturing people? Right. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Also, like if they're literally just taking like, you know, if you're being tortured and they're like asking you to name names, like you just name people that you know. Right. Off the top of your head. Yeah. <laughs> I know. Sorry, it's like, the people that are like, you're the first name coming to mind because I speak with you so often. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I um, named my cats. Right. It was Salem. <laughs> Honestly, though, it probably was Salem. Whatever. Probably. Whatever happened. Oh, Salem is it. a little witchy. We love him. So witchy. then La Sen was arrested after attending mass in March 1679 at age 42. When she was arrested, her maid was quoted as saying that it would mean the end of a large number of people in all ranks of society. Her daughter and her associates were arrested as well. The official commission to look into the poison and prosecute the guilty met for the first time in 1679. You know, so the month after she was arrested, there was an official commission formed. And the police chief, Nicholas de Renier, that we have we got to know he was acting mm-hmm. judge and prosecutor. So like you were saying, he was judge, jury and executioner pretty much all in one. Seems very yeah. fair. <laughs> oh, I know. That's not fair at all. So during her time in prison, La Voisin was reportedly never tortured like the other women. There was an order giving permission to torture her, but it is believed she was not tortured because she would reveal too many highborn names. Oh, so it was almost like, so she could have probably torn down the royal court if they applied the same methods to her as they applied to the other fortune tellers that they accused during the affair of poisons. But it was almost like they wanted her to confess just to kind of get rid of her, but to omit the names of the higher born. So during her confession, she was reportedly intoxicated the whole time in during her confessions because the jailers knew of her alcoholism and they pretty much kept probably her permanently drunk. Better way to get someone to confess to something truthfully is just get them drunk. Right. She said that she did not know Madame de Montespan and that she referred all the clients who wanted poison to Marie Boss, who was already dead. And after months of being imprisoned, she confessed to selling poisons, black masses, etc. to influential people of royal court. But every confession that you read of hers seems really roundabout. 
and very forced. Uh, yeah. Like she's flip-flopping a lot. She seems like it's like, yeah, I did this, this, and this, but it wasn't really like this. And like she starts off with like she talks for a really long time about really innocent things. Yeah. So she's trying to like distract them. Exactly. And she never confessed to knowing Madame de Montespan or drugging the king with aphrodisiacs or poisons or performing black masses to win his favor. So she never confessed to any of those things. It sounds like she's still protecting her clients. Mm -hmm. She was actually very, she, the, some of the only names she ever gave up during her life were women who are only, who are already implicated. Yeah. Or dead. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So she denied injecting syringes into pregnant women to abort their baby. She denied burning aborted fetuses in her oven. She denied procuring poisons. She said all of the items and ingredients that they found in her home were for cleaning and family uses only. So make of that what you will. It's, it's like I said, her entire life, it's very hard to really determine to what extent she was guilty of her supposed crimes. It's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. they probably honestly could have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, a lot of cleaning products are very poisonous, even today. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then this in December 1679, so this was like seven months after she was arrested, King Louis XIV issued a decree calling for the execution of the whole network of fortune tellers, poisoners, alchemists, and their clients by any means necessary, no matter their sex, age, or rank. So at this time, just remember, like I'm just saying the La Voice End story, but there were dozens and dozens and hundreds of people being pers- like executed and accused, not dozens and dozens being uh, executed, but there were dozens and dozens being accused. Some of them got executed. So the whole country of France is just in this frenzy. Yeah. In February 1680, La Voisin was considered convicted of witchcraft and death by burning. She was executed in public at the Place de Greve. She pushed away the priests offering her the last rites and tried to kick the hay surrounding her feet as she was tied at the stake. But of course, yeah, you know, didn't yeah. do anything. No, no. And the police chief kept investigating people su- suspected of witchcraft and poisoning in his burning court. It's actually, I just translated, but it's actually called the Chambre Ardente, but burning court. Many of these people were of noble birth. The court investigating the affair of poisons implicated 442 people, 218 were arrested. God. Like, can you imagine? That's actually a lot. 36 were executed, right? Five were sentenced to the galleys and 23 into exile. Oh my God. Right? And this does not include those who died by torture or suicide in the penal system. Uh, Additionally, many of the accused were never brought to trial but placed outside the justice system by the king and in prison for life. So the number, obviously we can't even possibly know the real number of people whose lives were really ruined, ruined. or affected by this so-called affair of poisons. We must note that Parisian socialites, high-class women of nobility, or just other high-class women, were exiled or imprisoned when found guilty, while women of lower rank were hung. The police chief gave light sentences to society women, which of course still pissed the nobility off, but this affected the legitimacy of his court in the public's eye, which this is complete class discrimination, which we I, I see all the time. I was going to say, that's so class. Yeah, no, we do still see that. Mm-hmm. And it's still bullshit. Right? And so, just for an example, two women were both accused of murdering their husband by poison to marry their lovers. One was a socialite. One was the wife of a carpenter. The socialite was imprisoned and then sent to a convent. And the wife of the carpenter had her right hand cut, cut off and was hanged. My God. I never understand why, like, some of these things, they do both. It's like, why are you doing multiple things? Like, if you're going to kill someone, just kill them. Don't, some like, make them undergo torture. Ugh. Right. And I like, just... It's much overkill. 
Right. I think it was just to teach everyone a lesson. I don't know. Yeah. It's it's just fear mongering. Like they're right? just trying to create fear. Exactly. Keep people in line. Yeah. And after her death, Lavoisin's daughter then revealed her connection to Madame de Montespan. So Madame de Montespan was not connected to the affair of poisons until 1680 after Lavoisin had died. Okay. And so her daughter is the one that... Lavoisin's daughter who was arrested okay. alongside her, revealed her connection and the okay. supposed murder attempt on the king. She revealed her daughter, Lavoisin's daughter revealed her list of clients and the descriptions of black masses. So a lot of that we know of Lavoisin today was not revealed by Lavoisin herself, but her daughter. Um, okay. The extent that they tortured her or if she was tortured to uh, reveal these confessions, we don't know. It was reported that she gave eyewitness testimonies and exact accounts of what happened supposedly in the exact date. She said that three years before that Madame de Montespan had come for a black mass at 10 a night and did not leave until midnight and things like that. And when Madame de Montespan's name was revealed, because you remember she was a royal mistress and really dear to the mm-hmm. king, even though when she got demoted, she was still the king's friend and still pretty high up in court and mother of his children. The king quickly closed the investigation. So the whole affair de poisons. And the court in 1682. So, of course, like at that time, many women have died. Many women were implicated. But the minute that someone really close to the king was implicated, closely shut down. Exactly. And he had the testimonies sealed and imprisoned and exiled the others really to keep everyone quiet by using a letters de lettre de cachet. And these are letters signed by the king and one of his ministers, and they have a royal seal. They are literally... The biggest abuse of absolute monarchy, they are orders of the king that you cannot appeal. So they are above the laws of court. They are above everything. They use He used them to avoid a royal scandal and to affect to protect Madame de Montespan. So like he would, if there was like, you know, obviously after he closed the courts and he sealed the testimonies, there were still people that he had to hush up or get rid of or people that he still suspected were guilty. So he used these letters to banish people or imprison them without a trial or defense. Like a lot of women, a lot of women were sent to convents, like a lot of them. Jeez. (laughs) Right? And like, yeah, it's just such an abuse of power. Oh my God. Right? And so upon the abolishment of his court, the police chief, La Reine, said the enormity of their crimes proved their safeguard. So obviously, La Reine just obviously felt that he still hadn't gotten to the bottom of everything. He thought that the king was protecting people by using these letters de cachet. And it's just like... Well, he was. He was. (laughs) He was. But the police chief also was using rumors and falsified eyewitness testimony to convict women of crimes. Obviously, there is proof that a couple women poisoned their husbands. There is, I think, absolute proof. But like 442 of them? Yeah, that's, it seems like a lot. And I mean, honestly, they're like, their evidence really wasn't sound and their way of getting information wasn't very accurate. And honestly, at this time, like, you see this part, like witch trials all across Europe and then even like in America with the Salem witch trials. It's literally only on like eyewitness, not even eyewitness, but on other people's accounts. Yeah. 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 Or or like 13 year old girls. It's all slander. And it's like, yeah, it's yeah. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, upon the king realizing that Madame de Montespan, his royal, his 
previous royal mistress was included in the plot. She was banished to a convent with a pension of a half a million francs. And her father was promoted or made governor of Paris by the king as some sort of consolation. And La Voisin was hanged. Ugh. So it just oh, sort of shows, so right? And then in 1687, King Louis XIV issued an edict against witchcraft. Again, that edict is very broad. And so I think at this point, it's like, it's kind of funny though, because before the affair of poisons, fortune telling, like was saying, was actually seen as a very acceptable profession. But of course, after this whole affair of poisons and all these edicts, it's not seen as acceptable anymore. Oh, okay. So that's what really what made... At least in France. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. That's interesting. And so much of La Voisin, of course, is known because of her court case. If she was not implicated, she probably continued to practice her arts relatively quietly. We, of course, need to question the trial records, which were probably not written by an unbiased party. The transcripts from interrogations also must be questioned because many of the accused were lying and incriminating others to draw attention from themselves. La Voisin's life of sorcery and black magic could largely be a fabrication. She could have just been somebody who did a little magic on the side and she could have just been a midwife, but she obviously was a very good fortune teller. I don't really know what to believe about all these accounts of sorcery and stuff. All I know is that she obviously is a woman who quote unquote stepped outside of her bounds and was implicated. I do believe she had, you know, for her connection to Madame de Montespan, did she perform a black mass or was she just performing an abortion? We, you know, it's just, it's one of those things where, you know, you don't know. Yeah. And also like women at the time too. It's like, if you did anything that wasn't what you were so soothed and like you were a witch and you were evil and like, it just opened the door to all these like accusations. So yeah. I mean, she probably was honestly just like a woman who was helping other women and like that was cool uh, back then. And, you know, before I... Uh, continue anything else. I just really quickly wanted to say, um, I, of course, use a variety of articles, but I rely pretty heavily on the book called The Affair of the Poisons, Murder, Infanticide, and Satanism at the Court of Louis Fourteenth by Anne Somerset. It was kind of hard because I think I got a feeling where my view on La Voisin is very different than a lot of the people that wrote about her, but granted, a lot of people that wrote about her were, wrote about her in Back like... Then. Even back then, but I'm talking about today, I feel like they rely so heavily on the testimonies without really reading into how false the testimonies could be. She was a member of the community. You know, she went to Mm -hmm. church. She went this. She went that. She was supporting her family by fortune telling, and she got quite wealthy, and a lot of people started seeking out her advice, and she was also a midwife. I feel like she was just kind of just a valued member in society, and... Yes, she may have dabbled a little bit in sorcery and she may have dabbled in this. And I feel like a lot of women, you said, like you said, they sought her out, even if they were of a higher class, because they could count on her secrecy. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it, yeah. I mean, also, like, it's really hard to take someone's word back then who was like in the midst of all that, or like even just take the testimonies. Mm -hmm. at at face value. Exactly. And so I just, a lot of like the books and articles and everything that I read just completely bought into the idea that she was a sorceress and that she did murder babies and that she did perform black masses and that she did do all these things. And it's like, did she perform black mass or was it just kind of like, you know, a little ritual where, you know, she helped women manifest what they wanted. You know what I mean? 
yeah i i'm i think i'm with you on your view i mean that's honestly like we don't know but i i feel like that's like probably a more probable thing than like her you know murdering babies and like crushing them up right yeah so you know obviously la voisin challenged a lot of the norms at the time and she challenged a lot of ideas at the time and you know she was the head of a network of abortionists and she was the head of a network of fortune tellers and I think all in all she was a pretty cool person that might be kind of controversial to a lot of people but I think she just was a, a renaissance woman who had a lot of lovers on the side and she lived life big and she was uh, hanged for or burned at the stake for it so I think she sounds cool too Right, right. Yeah. She was a definite harlot in my book. She is a harlot. Yeah. Yeah. So that's La Voisin. Sorry if it's all over the place, but the affair of poisons is like, I mean, even the testimonies alone, there's like 300, 400 pages of it. So just to search out a couple of the juicy tidbits and. No, good job. That was really good. That was so interesting too. Right. Just to kind of, and you don't really, when you hear about Louis the 14th, you don't really hear about this, mm-hmm. you know, and obviously we know like most Kings are absolute horrible people, yeah. um, you know, and to see this, you never hear about a witch hunt really going on inside the Royal court. I know it's so interesting. Yeah. And like actually implicate people that were not just peasants and yeah, which I thought so was kind of you just yeah, really really interesting and well, yeah, just and also like the cover up too of him, you know, pre- yeah, it's just and yeah. I highly recommend people going to read some of the stories about how women tried to allegedly poison their husbands because some of them I was like laughing. I didn't mean to laugh, but it's like <laughs> one this one woman supposedly in this was in a confession from La Voisin, a woman got really mad at her supposedly because La Voisin wouldn't poison a bouquet of flowers that she wanted to give to a woman who was sleeping with her husband. That wouldn't even have worked. The, I know. Kill the flowers. Like you can't just hand someone a bunch of dead flowers. You're like, no, no, it's fine. Just take it. <laughs> and that just, of course, ties further into, you know, how I said La Voisin, all her confessions were really roundabout. It's like, hey, people approached me for poisons and they wanted me to do it. And they got really mad at me because I wouldn't do it. And then she doesn't like go on into saying like, I was this further feeds. Like, was she, did she do this? Did she not? Again, it's really confusing. That's how all of her confessions are. Someone approached me to really do this really random poisoning in this really crazy yeah. way. And I, of course, said no. And then she would further say, I did it on moral grounds. But then also I told him it wouldn't work. So it's, I don't know. She's just very, she's very roundabout woman. And she's very, I think she was protecting her clients a lot, her family, her business. I don't know. It sounds, yeah, it sounds like it. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that was La Boisin. Good job. Thank you. You ready to um, a happy harlot? Yeah. I guess my happy harlot is I actually left my house yesterday. Woohoo! <laughs> I know. Um, it's been super, super smoky. I guess this episode's coming out next month, but we're recording it in August. So Colorado and California, too, there's like a ton of forest fires, and which is really, really sad. And it's but like it's the air quality in other a lot of parts of the state is really bad. So we've just been staying inside. But yesterday... We drove up to the Rocky Mountains, and it was actually clear up there. It, it's closer to the fire, so I kind of thought it would be worse. But I think just the mountain air helped. And we actually, Matt and I, went to 
the bridge that like when I first brought him to Colorado, when we'd like only been dating a couple of months, like three years ago, mm-hmm. we came out to visit my parents and we like went on this trail. So we went back to the same spot uh, where we like took a picture. And so it was fun. We like just kind of like hung out. I walked in the, in this like really pretty Creek and just in the mountains and like through the forest. And it was really nice. And just nice. to like, this sounds so lovely. Yeah. It was really lovely. If you ever are allowed to come visit my parents, it's like this one spot. I don't know. My parents have taken so many people. I've literally been to this one spot probably like 50 times, <laughs> but like, it's like the one spot my parents always take people whenever they come visit, but it's really pretty cute. Yeah, it was fun. Well, uh, my happy harlot was, uh, this week we went to a sunflower farm or a farm that had a huge sunflower field to do. You pick sunflowers and we felt really safe and we got a, we had a tractor ride with just our family over there to the sunflower field, which was really fun for the kids. And the kids got to run among all the sunflowers and get super dusty and dirty. And I got so many pictures and we saw so many cute animals and we got tons of sweet corn and just to like be in a sunflower field with like no one else around because the ticket sales were so reduced and we went on a weekday. It was just really fun. That's so nice. I'm sure that was so pretty. We have some like massive sunflowers out here that are like seven feet tall. Yeah. Yeah. Like we couldn't, it was like a maze. It was so cool. It's awesome. Yeah. really cute. Oh. Good happy harlots. Right? Great happy harlots. Both outdoors. Look at us. Yes. Used to be city girls. Look at us now. I know. (laughs) Well, I'm mostly uh, inside my apartment, but I wanted to get outside before I start school in a couple days. I was like, the only nature I'm going to see is the like pages of my textbooks. (laughs) The only trees you're going to (laughs) see. Yes, that's true. (laughs) Well, Well, good job. Thank you. And so... We just want to say thanks, everyone, for listening. We're here taking back the word harlot. One episode at a time. Be a harlot. Not a hater. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. Our music is by Lloyd Rogers, and our cover art and our editing is by us. If you enjoyed listening, we would be tickled if you left us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can always email us at harlotsofhistorypodcast at gmail.com, and we will do our best to get back to you with something witty, snarky, or boring. We are also on Instagram and Twitter as Harlots of History. We love you all, even the haters.